I think the opportunity is that people recognize more and more a desire to be connected. I think we saw this like in, even in a place like San Diego, which feels so far away from all of the politics of the East and the Midwest. But during the uprisings around George Floyd, for instance, people didn't see a distance there. They saw those issues and how they resonate with the local experiences of people in San Diego. So I think there's many issues the fights around reproductive rights and reproductive justice that are people recognize the ability to build and exercise power locally as also the space of protection when you can't trust the other forms of government. So I think that's a huge opportunity for us to connect with folks on the ground. People aren't looking to government to solve their problems, you know, in the, in the weirdest sort of libertarian sense, you know, almost is that people are, don't look at government as a solution or as a factor. They look at it as, as a problem in many cases. And people are, you know, taking it to the, to the streets to bootstrap and do what they can to create the resources that they need. So mutual aid associations and mutual aid organizing, you know, boomed during the pandemic. But it existed and the infrastructure existed long before the pandemic because there was so much of the underground economy and the, um, the gray economy that it just existed because there weren't the type of jobs here in the type of economy. That was Kyra Green and Brandon Snyder. Kyra is the executive director of the Center on Policy Initiatives in San Diego. And Brandon is the executive director of Detroit Action. The organizations they lead are part of the Power Switch Action Network of groups organized to build local and regional power around the country. My co-host, Lauren Jacobs, who is ED of Power Switch Action, and I spoke with them just after the surprising results of the referendum in Kansas, where voters rejected an attempt to end all protections for abortion rights. That result highlighted the need to talk with people about the issue they care about, all people, without ignoring those who we nearly think are not with us. The four of us had a wide-ranging conversation, examining the challenges and opportunities they face as their organizations build power. Particularly revealing were the discussions of what the shift from election work to governance entails, and how to combine the strategies providing mutual aid, which is essential in many working-class Black communities, with strategies that engage governments in order to capture needed resources. We also had a rich exchange around the question of identity with the rise of Black GOP candidates in Michigan and the rise of a set of Black electeds that advance neoliberal politics. I think you'll enjoy the show. Hey, folks, this is Stephen Pitts, host of Black Work Talk. I'm here with my friend and my co-host, Lauren Jacobs. Lauren, how are you doing now? I'm doing well. Late Anything summer. special happening in your life? Anything going on in particular? Uh, some dinner plans, maybe. Uh, dinner plans. <laughs> so we need, a, we need a special episode of the podcast to get a review of the, of the dinner, okay? So well, make sure you uh, schedule that, all right? I will make sure I schedule that. I'll give my dining reviews with Black Power. <laughs> Sounds great. Um, is it kind of hot in Philly? It is hot, uh, but it's not as hot as it can be. We haven't, I'm knocking on wood, reached over 100 days, like sometimes it happens um, yeah. in this time of year, but yeah. Yeah. You got to love summer. Try to lean yeah. into it. Flowers are still growing and stuff. How about you? I know it's not hot it's out kind of, it's, in the Bay. No, the, the Bay stays kind of the Bay, right? So kind of right now it's been maybe low 80s on some days, but that that's clearly, that that's it's kind of hot for the Bay, but and for me it's, it's Evan. So it's kind of cool. But you know, the big event was kind of um, what happened in Kansas. 
because you know we've, we've been kind of reeling over both the, the Supreme Court decision overturning Roe and also the the reality and the fears of, of what the GOP would do given that kind of the horses are loose now. So let's let's get rolling. And then Kansas happened. A- any thoughts on, on on the vote there and what that means? I mean, I think there's going to be a lot of lessons gained by all of us as we keep sitting with it and more information comes out. But one is, you got to know, decisive, decisive win. Two, I think the thing I'm taking from it is people are complex. And it's why organizing is so critical, because we can't just write off folks. We can't look at folks as, you know, oh, they don't agree with me on my 10-point list. You know, they can't be part of the crew. We need to be able to engage folks and move them um, and move their point of view on different issues um, and their point of view on what's possible for the communities. Because I think bright red Kansas voting overwhelmingly to keep abortion legal in the Constitution, that's the lesson for me. What are you thinking? Unexpected, happy, uh, agree wholeheartedly the idea of focal complex. And we tend to ignore complexity at, for our detriment, by the way, about power building. I worry about reading too much into it because I think that that we think about a lot of times we look at kind of the polling on single issues. Films always come out on our side, and even we have the actual votes. You know, like Florida restoring restoring rights to former incarcerated, or a lot of states raising minimum wage. We 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 kind of win on single issues, but when we when things are packaged into are you on my side or their side? Then a lot of things get gets kind of suppressed. So then you, you need to keep that in mind. And, and last, I want to get to get to our, our, our guest today. I've been reading some stuff by Laura Putman, who's I think it's over at in Pittsburgh. She's some fascinating looking at um, the Pittsburgh part of the state of Pennsylvania, and recognizing that you got to do the work and talking to people to begin to change folk. And sometimes, if you lose it by twenty, that's actually a victory. Because you've been losing my 50 before. And, and so knowing that we're running a marathon, and it has to be a part of the story as well. Um, but with, the issue is building power and figure it out. And I'm glad that we have two experts to help us figure it out today. We, we have Kyra Green. Did I get it right, Kyra? I didn't. Kira. Kira. Kira Green. Um, I would say it's old age, by the way, Kira, but this is the more <laughs> old age, by the simply how mine operates. Kira, how are you doing? So good to be here. And you're executive director of the Center I'm, on Policy. Uh-oh, correct me again now. What do you self-introduce yourself? <laughs> I will do that. <laughs> I am the executive director of the Center on Policy Initiatives, and we are located in San Diego, California. Okay, a little bit south of me. That's I'm right. so glad you're here, by the way. Glad you're here, okay? Thanks for having and me. And also here from the great state of Michigan and Detroit Action, the COED is Brent Snyder. Brent, how you doing, man? I uh, appreciate it. Uh, you know, so our uh, welcome in Detroit is uh, what up, Doe? So I, I appreciate you. Uh, welcome, what up, Doe? So welcome. Um, glad to be here. Appreciate the welcome. I was saying in the prep, getting at the end of the week to kick it with uh, Kira and Lauren was the highlight. So this is this will be fun. Yeah, it's kind of wild electorally in Michigan. You got some strange folk in that state, dude. <laughs> <laughs> I 
mean, where, where, where do you want to start? Like, that's a, that's a, that's, that's, that's such a broad question around, uh, you know, strangeness electorally. Yeah. It could, it could be just no question. Yes, we do. Or no, we don't. By the way. That's fine. That's a, I mean, it's, it's not, it's not even, <laughs> it's like, you know, we've got, we've got, we've, we've got a lot of strange folks. You know, we just had our uh, primary election on Tuesday. We'll have three black Republicans uh, up for Congress, one black Republican up for uh, Secretary of State, another black Republican up for uh, State Senate. It's a lot going on. And we, you know, we've got one of the uh, the folks who was on the Republican side, you know, got got arrested before the election because he was, you know, in the Capitol on January six. Uh, we we had a plot to kidnap our governor last year, so you know it's a, it's, it's a wild place. That's what I say, Brandon. See, I'm from Chicago. When I hear people taking guns to get the, to grab the governor, that's crazy stuff. Okay, so that that's yeah. my definition of crazy stuff. And and, and to be from Chicago and say that that's even wilder. Like you know, like, <laughs> like Chicago, a wild place in and of its own. Like you know, <laughs> but being being a bit more serious and stuff. You mentioned the three black Republicans running for Congress. What's the chance of winning? Uh, one out of three. Uh, we've got um, so to the west side of the state, closer to your, to your hometown of Chicago, uh, in Grand Rapids, the third uh, congressional district. Uh, I forgot his first name, but Gibbs, who is a Trump supporter, defeated Peter Meyer, who was one of the ten Republicans who. Uh, voted to impeach Trump. Meyer comes from the Meyer supermarket family. So he's a uh, uber billionaire, extremely wealthy, and, you know, lost his primary to a Trump supporter, black Republican. Uh, and unfortunately, it looks like when you start digging into the money, the uh, Democratic Party spent about half a million dollars to support Gibbs because they thought he would be the easier candidate to defeat in November. So he's uh, one of the candidates. That's probably a district that's going to go blue for the first time. In about a generation, that was where uh, Gerald Ford came out of, and that sort of side of town. You you swing over to the uh, to the eastern part of the time of, of the state in the 10th congressional district, which is the home of Macomb County and the former home of the uh, the Reagan Democrats. You've got John James, whose family is a uh, you know comes from a a sort of middle class black family uh, of manufacturers here in uh, Metro Detroit. Uh, he previously ran for for U.S. Senate in twenty and in eighteen, and he's probably going to win that district. So, you know, very interesting times uh, with those folks. You know, I think the other black Republican candidates that I mentioned, you know, don't really have a chance, a snowball's chance in hell. But uh, but you know, he'll probably be the one. Uh, James will probably be the one to pick up a congressional seat. Now, I, I raised it because you know. Well, in my sense, that the need of the times and the purpose of the conversation is power building. And I think a lot of times what happens is I'll call it in very shallow ways. We allow skin color to define how we build power and not actually relationships based on achieving change and achieving certain goals. And so to me, it's important that we understand that, you know, black or white, the question really is where you're coming from, who, who, who you... Who, who you stand for, and that's super important. But I wanted to talk to both y'all, both first about kind of what do you see are, are the broad challenges and opportunities 
for power building at the metro and regional level. So I want to kind of forget about DC right now. Call it a lost cause. It's kind of right now. Just it is what it is, and the best what we get isn't that good. But to me, the, the, where the action is and the excitement is, is where you people are, down San Diego in the broad area, and Detroit in that broad area. Because me, you bought you build the bottom up. So give me give me a sense of your take in terms. Like I said, let's start in San Diego. What do you see as some of the broad challenges and opportunities for building power where you are? Yeah, I think the opportunity is that people recognize more and more a desire to be connected. I think we saw this like in even in a place like San Diego, which feels so far away from all of the politics of the East and the Midwest. But during the uprisings around George Floyd, for instance, people didn't see a distance there. They saw those issues and how they resonate with the local experiences of people in San Diego. So I think there's many issues you know, the fights around reproductive rights and reproductive justice that are people recognize the ability to build and exercise power locally as also the space of protection when you can't trust the other forms of government. So I think that's a huge opportunity for us to connect with folks on the ground. I think the biggest challenges in the kind of work that we do that is very centered in a particular geography at the region of San Diego is how rapidly the region itself is changing. I mean, just physically where people live each day is changing pretty rapidly. And so most of us are used to, when we say we organize locally, we mean in a central city, right? We mean in the city of San Diego or in Detroit, but more and more as we're seeing all over the country, it means going out to these suburban communities where our communities are being pushed as they get, as cities get gentrified and, you know, people get pushed out and there's much less of the organizing Based, the infrastructure, the set of connections between people is being reconfigured, even as we're doing this work. And I think that feels to me like one of the biggest challenges at the like metro level. How do you deal with the question of space? Like, I mean, the idea that people, you know, we're used to rolling through a central city and people saying, I understand that, but I'm living someplace else. How do you deal with that from an organizing perspective? I'll say one thing about it, and then I'm hoping Brandon is, because he's got all the brilliance here on this one. But I think it also is points to another opportunity in the kind of work we do at Power Switch Action, which is an opportunity to talk to people as workers. Because I think what, even when sometimes people's lives are changing more rapidly in our region right now, they're where you live, but where the jobs are is not changing as quickly. And so the ability to really center that, which has historically been somewhat challenging in a place like San Diego, I feel like it's an opportunity now because people's lives are organized so much more clearly by their work lives. Uh, uh, And I will acknowledge in this conversation, there's some challenges around that intentions and changes that are also happening. Uh, But as people redefine what work means to them and where they want to do their work, but it still is the case that their workplaces organize their lives in very important ways. And then the next set of institutions we think of that continue to center people's lives and how we think about where, what are the institutions of organizing, right? Because historically, at say in Black communities, we could think about churches, and those are very much connected to where you live in many cases. But what about school sites and work sites? These are institutions that organize people's lives in places where they want to exercise actual authority and and control over what those places look like. And so they offer us ways to talk to people about what power looks like, too. So so how is Detroit similar or different from San Diego, man, and looking at the broad challenges? I mean, I think when you think about Detroit, you also have to consider that we as a city, as a region, 
as a state, you know, are is a byproduct of white flight and divestment, and you know the sort of macroeconomic factors of like flight, like moving jobs out of the manufacturing industry to the, uh, you know, out of the Midwest, the quote unquote Rust Belt into the Sun Belt. So, you know, you see it places like that and then even farther out of the Sun Belt and, you know, out of the country. Knowing that and then also start understanding like the history of the Midwest where, you know, black folks like my family moved up from Georgia and Alabama in the 1930s and the 1940s. Um, you know, to escape white terror and also for this promise of good jobs. And then you fast forward, you know, a couple of generations later and those jobs don't exist anymore. Or that quality of life that folks were looking for doesn't exist in the uh, Midwest. That coupled with just like just the racial history of segregation, hypersegregation really defines like how it is that we talk about space and how it is that we talk about organizing, you know, day in and day out. So for us, you know, sort of like what you mentioned is, you know, People aren't looking to government to solve their problems, you know, in the, in the weirdest sort of libertarian sense, you know, almost is that people aren't, don't look at government as a solution or as a factor. They look at it as, as the problem in many cases. And people are, you know, taking it to the, to the streets to bootstrap and do what they can to create the resources that they need. So mutual aid associations and mutual aid organizing, you know, boomed during the pandemic. But it existed and the infrastructure existed long before the pandemic because there was so much of the underground economy and the, um, the gray economy that it just existed because there weren't the type of jobs here and the type of economy. And then when you think about like the work that we do, like we see ourselves as uh, a worker center for folks with and without jobs, or as I like to try and like explain it to like our, our staff, like a union for the hood. And so when we want to be able to so organize, it's how do we understand that folks have this aversion to government, but also, you know, don't have the same experiences that their grandparents or their parents may have had of having a, a, a tightly and neatly defined workplace to organize themselves in. So how are we giving them that opportunity, you know, on the ground, you know, in their neighborhoods to be a part of community? To, 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 you know, to, to be a leader, to be a fully de- developed leader and, and really how to build power. So like we try to think about our fights around space is, you know, is literally that in itself is around housing, is around lack of access to jobs, is around uh, democracy, the ability to engage in the civic arena in the first place. And then, you know, you know, the things that are our quote unquote meat and potato issues where it's like, you know, safety, like what does it look, what does it mean to be safe in a neighborhood? And that's how we think about space is defining that, that relationship that people have, that people have to their block, to their city, to the region. That expression, Union for the Hood, I love that. I made a channel on my inner Trumpism and, and copyright that, man, and mark that, that one. But, but, <laughs> but that was a phenomenal phrase because when I hear it, it captures kind of the legacy of unionism in Detroit where people know what it is and they know that's a good thing because they know that, that their, their daddy or their granny, whatever, grew up in UAW family in many respects. So that's an interesting application of history to modern conditions. I, I want to roll this in two different directions. When I think of one of the, the tasks before us is to govern, to run stuff, okay? But the challenge is that there may be like a symmetry between 
where we could grab power position-wise and the power to transform a region. And so that's the first thing I want to put out there for y'all to resolve the question I have. That, 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 you know, we may get on city council for the central city, right? And have maybe a progressive majority, maybe be a junior partner with some questionable black neoliberal folk. That's not the conversation, by the way. Um, but still, people, as you said, are outside the central city. What do you do? So the question of governance in the new reality, how do you see moving toward a place where we actually govern things? And I want to say the goal is not to become a junior partner with black neoliberals or white neoliberals or Latino neoliberals or Asian neoliberals. Um, we actually, we ourselves are the leading partner in these coalitions, by the way. How do we get to that given where you, where you see where you're standing right now? One of the things that we do at the Center on Policy Initiatives is work with people, because I want to talk about this idea of governing outside of the, the central city. There are actually, you know, people that we know the challenges of running for these offices, but we also know that these are places that are sources of power. So while we can't work with people as candidates, we can certainly attack the other side of it, which is once people get elected, what happens? Because so much of the work we do around governing actually doesn't talk about governing. It talks about getting people elected, but not about governing. And in these smaller cities, at least in the region that I live in, these are usually not full-time jobs. So being a city council member of a suburban community like El Cajon, it's not even that, I grew up in Western Kentucky. So to me, the town I live in, El Cajon, is huge. It's got 100,000 people. I grew up with you know 24 to 30,000 people. Like this is a lot of people but it's a suburban, small town community for the region. City council jobs are not full-time. So the people who do them are working regular jobs, which has some real advantages, right? Because they are connected to the day-to-day -day lives of what it means to struggle the same way, but it has lots of big disadvantages. They don't have staff to rely on to do research for them. They don't have you know, people to go out in the community and do community relations for them and keep them connected and hearing things. So we have to, and they don't, themselves often know the full range of issues that they want to work on. So one thing that we can do at CPI is provide some of that policy support once people are elected. And we can also do things like help them come together after they're elected and think about how they want to govern and what it takes. And this is where the power of people who've been organizing is so important. Because someone who knows how to organize knows that you take that same concept, you take that same way of being, and you say, my team, if I'm an elected official in small town, I'm building an organizing chain. I am actually going to lean into other people in my community, and we are going to collectively govern in this office. And so, and we're going to divide up this work. We're going to make sure we're reaching out to people. You know, right now that feels more like a place we're experimenting. I would not say like, come, come look here in San Diego. We can show you how we're doing this. Like we got these four city councils with, you know, majorities working in this way. But that's really where we see the work being because it's an opportunity to show people what governing can be and to get folks to what Brandon was talking about, like to believe in government again and to see a government as something they do which is not what they see when they look at big, most big cities and certainly at higher levels of, you know, of, of government. You don't see that as something regular people do and that they do in a, in a co-governance kind of way, a collective way. So we think that's a, a direction we can go in. Yeah, and, and the other thing to that point too, that like 
like inspires me is that there's just not a whole lot of people who we would ever consider our people who think that they can run for office. So, you know, when we're thinking about, you know, all the work of elections and campaigns, we're trying to get the Ivy League educated, you know, person who's the you know most uh, charismatic speaker, you know, who, you know, who has all these sort of like shiny polished resumes. And that person may not hold all of the experiences as our member leaders, you know, who've been to jail, who may have had family members who've been incarcerated, who may have lost a job, who may have debt or, you know, whatever. And so for us, you know, one of the things that we think about a lot is like not just the whole candidate pipeline, you know, stuff that a lot of organizations do, but like how are we giving people the skills and the, the relationships to be organizers of their neighborhoods, to be um, leaders in their community, and to have the relationships so that way, if they are tapped, if they, they can be tapped and they can be prepared to run for office. And they know that, that a community and the ecosystem has their back, you know, because I think that like for the folks that we've elected, the people that we're in deep relationship with, you know, whether it's a Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib, who's a member of our organization, or um, our city councilwoman, um, Gabriela Santiago Romero, who's the second uh Latina um, elected to be Trade City Council, you know, as the first uh, queer person, uh, outward queer person elected to uh, Detroit City Council. You know, they talk about it all the time that like being elected is lonely and like being able to make sure that I'm like, like Kira was saying is like that we're doing the work of co-governance, but the co-governance stuff when they're in office is deeply important. And it means like we have to elect organizers. We have to elect people who see that they're accountable to a base, just like you would if you're trying to hire an organizer. Now, the whole idea of, um, I'll, I'll take what you said, um, Kira, and put it in, in my, my words for a quick second. Not trying to do any mansplaining, by the way. <laughs> um, but, but, but the idea that, that in some areas, you'd become the staff of local officials. It's a fascinating way to look at the idea of governance and the role of, of progressive. I haven't really thought of before. So we appreciate the he hearing that and, and so forth. Um, I'm excited to jump in because um, I hope people listening are getting why I am so happy to work with these two amazing um, organizers and strategists. I mean, Brandon, this is going to picking on both something you said and something you also said, Kira. So, Brandon, you were talking about structures that exist in the community, right? Which I would also say is a prefiguration of governance is governing sort of common resources, but outside of the state. And Kira, you're sort of, we're touching on what it might look like, you know, in this moment or in this, within the structures in which we're, we work to actually have real co-governance. So I'm, I'm wanting to even, I wanted to hear more about that, but then also trouble the waters on this question around, um, you know, the network that we're all part of, Power Switch Action talks about wanting to achieve multiracial feminist democracy. And that's, you know, our North Star and what we're dreaming and hoping for. And we're intentional about the multiracial part. However, the three of us, I know, feel that black um, organizing and, you know, a black power, not by itself, is also critical. So I'm wondering if you could maybe talk about those issues of the inside, outside, the questions of multiracial, but the critical nature of black working people to that project? 
Maybe, I don't know who wants to take it first. I, I'll just be real quick, because I think it, it's, it's, it'll be interesting to hear, hear how, how it looks in um, San Diego and um, in California. But, you know, Michigan's a, a very white state, you know. <laughs> but Detroit, you know, Detroit is like 80, 80%, 79% Black. So, you know, you're not winning as a Democrat unless you actively work to engage Black folks. You are not winning as uh um you know as a as a detroit city uh, uh mayor unless you work to, or or a senator or whatever unless you work to actively engage black folks or a congressman or whatever and so you know the work has to also think about you know when we when we think about organizing is one yes that we have a message specifically to build black political power and what does that mean to to, to fight against you know uh uh, black neoliberalism in our in our in our region, but also recognizing that you know we, Detroit is one of the largest communities of uh, Middle Eastern Americans. Like we've got a rising um, Latinx electorate that if you ask them, they'd be like, "Look, we've been here since the '40s too," you know, here in Detroit. So understanding that when we think about um, you know building power, it is multiracial. It is uh, you know multiracial feminist sort of power that power switch talks about because like there's no other way to win the sort of like gains that we need in in this state or in this region you know far too often we're played against uh our our you know our, our brothers and sisters you know from other communities or our brothers and sisters from other other parts of the state detroit is a dog whistle in state politics and it's often used as a dog whistle to say black folks you know, we don't want to do this thing because uh, because it'll it'll benefit Detroit. And when you hear that, you're like, oh, okay, I know what time it is. Or we don't want to do this thing because it'll benefit Flint. We, we know what time it is when you hear that. And so for us, that that work, you know, the work of, of building power, you know, literally starts is it, part of why we started at the city and why we care about the city, the city's power and also regional power, because, uh, in order to sort of heal, in order to sort of like build power, we have to confront massive ways of segregation, um, hypersegregation that has caused the city to look like it is. And also understand that, you know, in places where 50 years ago, like Oakland County, where, uh, you know, the, the former uh, county executive said that he wanted to build a, a fence around the county and throw, uh, and, and throw, you know, an infected blanket inside of it, like, you know, trying to, you know, give those sort of illusions understand that like you know while he's you know looking up from us from the great beyond you know he uh you know black folks live in that community and like they move to that community because of all the macroeconomic forces they they see in the city whether it's uh you know lack of housing lack of jobs you know schools whatever so we have to be able to have a conversation about city and suburbs um both with white folks both with black folks and um you know with our uh, latinx and asian american brothers and sisters well, my answer to it, Lauren, is that it's complicated, but there's a simple thing in response to what Brandon said, which is Brandon talks about Detroit as a place where you cannot get elected if you don't talk to Black people. You can get elected all day in San Diego and not talk to any Black people. It's quite possible. Um, we live in a, a different reality, right, where Black people do not constitute a majority of any, any city, any neighborhood. Um, that is not how Black power is going to operate in San Diego. But it also is an interesting thing. I mean, it brings up so many different 
avenues for me because it's also the case that Southern California has this interesting thing where it is has never just been black and white people. Like the places I grew up in, you know, have this at least their imagined history of race where there's black people and there's white people and that's that's pretty much it. And obviously here, you know, Latinx folks living on in a border region, the continuous like movement of of migration around the border, communities that have been here for, you know, as people say sometimes, like they didn't move, the border just sliced through their communities. Um, the same is true for indigenous populations. We have one of the largest uh, concentration of indigenous lands and continuously governed indigenous spaces in the country. So, you, but still, you can you can get elected, you can have power, you can be an influential member of this community, having very little connection to black people, having very little connection to indigenous people. You probably have to have some relationship <laughs> to Latinx folks, like that has to happen. But what that means is how we talk about building power and who we want to build with. We have to agree to some things. So one thing the people we're going to build with in this multiracial feminist democracy have to be people who agree that this country and every place in it has both a moral and material debt to Black people. That the institutions and structures that exist here have been built on Black people. And that includes, by the way, the systems that oppress them. So the the system of racial hierarchy that exists, it exists in part, in large part, as a definition between how you're going to enslave people, right, and who you're not going to enslave. So when people, even if you're a, a, a recent arrival to this country, you are an inheritor of that history, of that tradition, of that reality, on the one hand. And on the other hand, if you're a recent arrival to this country and you're not white, you have to say that it's the struggle for civil rights that Black people led that actually liberalized immigration policy for many people that allows, that opened even the opportunity for them to become citizens in this country. So that doesn't mean that erases all other responsibilities from Black people, obviously. But we have to be able to have that kind of historical like reality analysis, public popular education that we do with each other that grounds us in why why it is so important why if you think that you can get to liberation without being party to the liberation of black people in this country you are mistaken this system will recreate itself as long as there is a place to redefine some set of people as black and to justify oppression for black people everybody is at risk and so i think that's part of the work that we have to do in a space that's so rich and diverse and and, and just to add one more wrinkle to it even the meaning we have to do that with all types of Black people, because in San Diego, it is also the case that we have a growing Black immigrant population um, that is itself learning about Blackness and making decisions, each person in each community, about how they're going to relate to, um, you know, the African-American descendants of slaves. Like, how is it, what does that look like? And how, do the, how does that redefine what Blackness is in the everyday experience of it? So all of that is happening and it's challenging, but it is also, to me, it is the most exciting moment to be in. It is the most possibility. And it, it, the diversity of people here also helps highlight how there is nothing inherent or natural about a system of oppression that exists by race. It's something that we have to create and recreate. Um, and I think it just gives opportunities to show how that happens in everyday experience of people who are arriving to this region. So... Yeah, I think this is the challenge that we confront, but it's also the work we are blessed to get to do. 
you know, someone outside of the power switch action network, I'm outside at this point. Yeah, welcome me into your family. So I appreciate that for at least at least an hour or so. Um, I wasn't a board of eBay's, by the way, so I'm a, I'm a kind of old member by old member of the family. But 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 to me, part of the story of both the cross racial organizing, but also the intra black organizing. You mentioned Brandon black neoliberals. I mentioned you mentioned black neoliberals. Is the question of economics and economic systems. And there's a way I think that we talk about racial oppression separate from economic exploitation. And I think one of the things that's inaccurate, first of all, I'll be honest. And then I think also beyond being inaccurate, it harms our capacity to move forward because we allow race slash the performance of race to dictate how we do politics. So I, I would just want to throw out there um, the, idea, the, the, the idea that someplace inside this motion is a set of economics, new economics that help us organize folk for a better world. Um, I don't remember the details, but I remember hearing about Detroit. I won't go back to um, a disgraced former mayor, by the way, we'll leave that alone for right now. Um, but people people love Kwame. Like he could run, he could he could he could run again if he if he chose. Yeah. And, and and that speaks to the question of the quality of our connections. It's not a matter of folk having some sort of love of black folks. It's simply it's how people how we roll, right? And so the question is simply given with this kind of natural flow of the river, for lack of a better term, how do you complicate the, the river flow? And we can do other kinds of strange metaphors, by the way, to keep going. But you know what I'm saying? That 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 I think when we don't kind of inject into the conversation and the practice, the, the, the question of new set of economies, um, it, it makes the process harder. A, a quick little digression, then go, I'll get to your responses. So I mentioned I was up at the Napa Festival, right? And we have you know, Dave Chappelle, Yasmin Bay, Yusine Bay, Robert Glasper. And, and Chappelle was kind of on good behavior vis-a-vis homophobia for a weekend at least, right? But it, it was interesting, his constant racial jokes about, you know, basically black was being oppressed by white folks. I'm saying, damn, dude, he kind of stopped the housing project in his backyard. He had money to do it. And he got paid. And so a lot of times we, we, we kind of put forth a, a narrative that belies the reality of black life. And, and so I just want to kind of put that out there for the conversation, for the response, for the what, what do you want to do to that? I just want to offer one thing, Stephen. It's not that I'm disagreeing with that analysis, but I do think we have to give Black people some credit that it's not, it's also not just a binary, because I think there have been plenty of examples of Black candidates who've been, for instance, Black candidates who've been offered to Black people, right? As like, here's your Black conservative person that you're going to get behind. And consistently, Black people are like, I know you might look like me, but you don't represent me. I think what gets more difficult and what you're describing is if people speak the language of social justice, if they have some of the critiques of whiteness, for instance, then I think it becomes much more difficult for people to be discerning in those situations about Black people or any people of color who stand with us and those who don't. So I just want to add, I think it's, it's if you do the other part well, if you do the sort of cultural side of it well, then you can hide a lot of other things. So how do you, how do you which, do that, though? But if I could jump, if I could jump in on this, I actually don't think it plays out usually 
that the sort of language of the sort of, I would call it sort of a neoliberal race, sort of like, hey, yeah, your lives matter, your lives matter, sort of everybody's lives matter, sort of, you know, wholesale politics. I tend to see that from white candidates or that are trying to appeal to black communities. I would say like neoliberal white candidates. Like I think the play with neoliberal black candidates is a little bit softer. It tends to be like, I'm an insider. I, I can get things done. You know, I want to sort of pick apart like how, what's the strategy of the candidates. I think the core thing is, you know, which I, I think, you know, I want to, I see it embedded in what Kira is talking about is sort of saying that the economic exploitation needs a system of racial binaries to exist. It's got to sort of sell. This is like, I mean, I'm just, I'm going to get a little heady. It's like, you know, Ruth Wilson Gilmore's point about like, yeah, of course you got racism because you got capitalism. And of course, you know, um, you got capitalism because you got racism. It's like, they're both mutually reinforcing systems. And I think that's what I was hearing at root of what Kira was saying was that unless you're sort of that, this system has got people so twisted that they'll vote, you know, like go and march to take away their own government benefits just to deny black people, immigrants, whoever is sort of the othered, those those rights. And we have to sort of say, like, we got to deal, tackle with both. So I'm, you know, I'm jumping in because I work with her, so I kind of know where she was headed. But <laughs> but I do, I want to, I do want to pivot and maybe ask and ask a different question of, um, all folks here, because I, I do think that there's this question about, I, you know, the other part I was posing about inside and outside, because I go back and forth on this. Yes, we want to, you know, run things and govern things, but the institutions that we're talking about, they're limited and they weren't designed by working people, right? So they're not necessarily the perfect tools to deliver. They have some tools to them. But at the same time, you don't want to just sort of say, oh, we walk away from it. It's an area of power. And I also think there's this building, you know, like mutual aid societies, benevolent associations. I think all that stuff is good. It's giving people a chance to govern things together, but it's not a substitute for the other stuff. So how do you balance? We try to do a little bit of all the things um, with organizing and power building at the root. So, uh, you know, quick 30 seconds is that I took over this job in, in the 2016 and it was kind of a fragmentation of a bunch of different organizations. One was a, a, a organization that did leadership development and service work and mutual aid for homeless and formerly incarcerated folks. And then the other part of the job, the other job I got that kind of that I pulled together and scrapped on this was an SEIU Fight for Fair Economy campaign. So they're precursors to the fast food worker strike. Um, when we relaunched, you know, we had leaders who were laser focused on the service work. We had leaders who were focused on like the sort of street mobilizations. We had leaders who were focused on, on you know, power building. And so we've been kind of trying to cobble together over the last few years of like a coherent system and structure of how do we move people from being service to organizing for being, you know, from crossing the bridge from being victims to being to being at, to being victors, and for for me, when I think about all of the, you know, the things that you sort of lifted up, Lauren, it all comes back down to like how do we center power at the center? How do we center community at the center of it? And what does it mean to like give people the tools to understand that like 
we are the ones that we wait that we wait for. Like like the thing I, I most love about like the BYP 100 movement was that we keep a safe sort of framing and phrasing. And it's also a, 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 a you know a charge that I think I push to our leaders is that like we are the ones with the policy expert. We are the ones with the policy. We are the ones with the strategy. So why not for us to take over this tool? Like we can't abandon it. Why not for us to take over this tool? And while we're building that tool or working with that tool, we've got stuff that we're going to use as well. This has been a great conversation, by the way. This, Because, um, Lauren, you pivot away from my important point I want to raise out there, but it's a good pivot, by the way. And so I'll, I'll follow your pivot. And, and so the concern I have, and clearly I don't know, I don't know the answer, by the way. So I'm simply put it out there, and y'all can solve my problems for me. The limitations of the mutual well, the mutual aid comes from being dispossessed. Got it. Folk got to survive. Got it. Boom. The limitations come because. I think the limitations become come because there's a set of possibilities beyond our resources that we deserve. That's step one. And the question how to get that, those, re, the, those deserved resources. Second, we're dispossessed because of an economic system that dispossesses other people as well, but in different ways. And at some point, you have to use political power to stitch people together and grab back our desired resources. And that requires engaging the state in a way that we can test for power. And so I just want to put that out there in terms of we can't forget about that. That's one thing. And, and the second thing around the question of like racism and capitalism kind of going hand in hand different ways and all those things See, maybe because I'm, I am old, so that'd be my explanation for this, right? But I think a lot about you no know, colonialism, but neocolonialism, and we have a lot of black managers who manage a system against us, and the question is how to deal with that. So to me, it's not only a matter of of non-black neoliberals having some version of color blindness; it's also the black neoliberals who will use, I, I call the performance of race. Also, it's a, it's a nuanced portrayal of their experience of race, an unnuanced that allows them to, to capture our energies and take it into, into capital. And, and so since I'm simply here in my retirement days, now to deal with the real world, but you two are there fighting the fight, how do you deal with these things? And, and so we talked before about this whole question of, you know, kind of building power, different space, those things are kind of at one level. But we're raising questions at a deeper level now. For how do you talk to folk who are struggling to survive and need mutual aid, people who need mutual aid and are receptive to the racial beatdown they, 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 they feel, and may not see it through an unnuanced way, by the way, and they get sucked up by folk, can, can, can align with people who don't have the interest in art. How do y'all deal with that? The challenge that we face is that, and you you sort of highlighted, is that you know all of these things are tools. All of these things are tools, and the problem is we can't 
we can't think that every tool is to fix every single problem. Like if you start thinking that everything is a nail, you're gonna think of uh, you're gonna only want to use a hammer. But philosophy and analysis are like the things that we try and center into this. So like when we did our mutual aid um, work in um, the height of the pandemic in 2020, you know we had to actively give people direct cash. And like we're not a charity, we had to talk about what is the what is the the contradiction, what is that we're trying to solve and that we're trying to highlight for folks. What is it that we're that we're tr- that we're trying to display, and why are we giving people direct cash? You know, in this moment when that's not our role. And for that, you know, we built relationships with people who were who were in the service and hospitality industry, and a lot of the other industries who were out of work, and we got people to 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 to, to come together to talk about. What are the things that we needed was, you know, moratoriums on um, water shutoffs and moratoriums on foreclosures and, you know, the actual pot of money for the people who were frontline workers. And so, you know, that came from not just giving people cash and being a charity, but, you know, injecting our analysis and our worldview and treating those folks that we were that we were supporting as uh, as leaders, like we're going to develop them. And, it, you know, some people fall, fall off. They're like, look, I'm only here for this cash. I'm only here to be in this situation. But a lot of people actually just want to be in community. They want to see that, okay, somebody's got their back and that people, you know, that there are other people who are going through this and it's not them themselves. So that's, that, that, that's my, I think, like analysis on it, that there are a lot of mutual aid programs. There are a lot of pop-up activist things and protests, and they don't have a co- coherent analysis that speaks to like what Lauren was talking about around how do we build, you know, the sort of multiracial democracy that's rooted in feminism and that's rooted in, you know, solidarity. And those are, are the wolves in sheep's clothing. Those are the things that don't have the structure to stand up on upon themselves. What I'll just say, friend, is I think you said something really beautiful there about like the analysis part of it. And I think what I try to do here in, in the work that we do is to take it, take the analysis to like the level of these institutions and to talk about how race and class get the same thing called different things. Like what if I make the argument that government is actual mutual aid set up by white men, like and rich people to serve, to meet each other's needs. And then when you look at it, like we don't, we are better as a movement about talking about like corporate welfare, right? But the whole point is that even during COVID, we saw businesses, we saw especially large corporations being bailed out over and over again, just given unlimited pockets of money. And if we, when we talk about doing that kind of aid to everyday people, it's like as if we've done something wrong. But I think being able to say to folks that if we take over, if, if we really govern our places, then we will take the kinds of institutions we've built outside of them and we will govern, we will turn these state structures into them. We will transform them by the lessons we have learned over the years of doing this work in our communities. And so I think that's the potential. It's not to say everything gets solved by the state structure, but I think that's the possibility that's there. One value of having both two phenomenal guests and having us on in the day on Friday, we could talk forever, y'all. Uh, but I'm not sure folk will listen forever. So I, I need to begin to kind of unwind, land the plane. I keep using my metaphor. I have a, a question for a, a, a relatively short answer, but not, not a brief little soundbite. 
Where do each of you see your organization being in three to five years? So kind of in, in not a dream world where I can run a marathon tomorrow type thing, but in the real world that you live in, where do you see you being in, in three to five years? And what are the, I'll say, one to three things you want to do to need to achieve that? I'll just start with saying, this has been the challenging question that we're in the midst of tangling with every day at CPI right now. And I think the best predictor of where we will be in three to five years is to talk a little bit about how much change we've made in the last three to five years. It's the tail end of a bunch of work. But I, I think what we would name as one of our biggest successes is that we've built the kind of authority you know, through people power in our region that we are taken seriously by people who make policy. And that comes from the ground up. And so whether it's in our city council, where they literally, because we told them to, refer to our coalition as the 10th council member uh, at our city council at the city of San Diego, or whether it's our county board of supervisors that transformed from a very conservative, anti-people governance set of people governing to ones that are, you know, by any definition, progressive on these issues. And they govern from what is called the Invest in San Diego Families Agenda. We developed that over the organizing in the community and we do nothing alone. Everything is in coalition. But we that those partnerships led to these outcomes. And so in three, you know, in three to five years, I expect that that will have expanded. I expect that we will have deepened those relationships. And in those places that I'm describing, those emerging cities and places where people are living and that where you have to have that kind of influence and power if you want to change the whole region, because there are problems that can't be solved by one city at a time that have to be collectively done. I expect us to be um, doing that work. I expect that the work that we have invested in supporting leaders at every level, including helping to build out the infrastructure for more organizing. You know, we are struck by how few people are actually paid to wake up every day and do organizing. And we've thought as an organization, how we, how do we help support new organizing forming? So that's why we do things like incubate the San Diego Black Worker Center. You know, that's an example of a project to say, we got to just expand this. So I expect we will have helped do that. We'll be in the process of that work and we'll be seeing the fruits of it. And I think that we will, in three to five years, be doing a better job, is what we want to, of having public conversations that include this type of analysis of like, how does the system work? And assuming that every single person who lives and works with us is not just capable, but hungry for doing the work of understanding how the system works and that that knowledge combined with their experience and their passions will transform our region. So that's where I see us. How about you, Brandon? What's up, man? What's your future like? So I'm in this debate with my girlfriend about when is it that I want to, um, you know, hang up my jersey and um, organize it, and when is it that I want to, um, you know, ride off into the sunset? And part of my, my my philosophy has been, you know, in Michigan at least, far too often we had old white dudes who would hold down organizations for 20 and 30 years, you know, gob up all the money, you know, not develop leaders, become thorns in the side of progressive, progressive, you know, power and policy, even though they're, you know, community organizations and then die. And, you know, my, my, my vision is not to be that. Well, one, because I'm not a white dude, but then two, the, the vision is that organizing has to become about developing folks in the pipeline to not only just be organizers and not just do the field work, 
but also be people who can be executive directors and can be leaders. And for, for me, what that means is how are we doing that work that Kira talked about of like seeding and developing organizers and, and growing the capacity to lead. Like we're, as a Midwestern organization, you know, we're constantly fighting against national organizations, against folks on the East Coast, folks on the West Coast, folks in Chicago, um, to try and keep talent here. And it's the reality is that we're going to have to like do that work of developing talent, growing talent, you know, in all sorts of directions and, you know, making Michigan a place that, that people see that they want to live and want to grow and want to develop their skills here. So I think that's like one. That also means that me being here and helping like drive that as, as a born and raised Detroiter. Um, and then I think the other thing that connected to that is like, how are we having conversations that censor workers and people of color and censor our values and vision and make candidates, elected officials, corporations, whomever responsive to that. A lot of the work that we do at Detroit Action, a lot of work that our partners at Mothering Justice or Michigan Liberation or We the People, um, et cetera, do is really because labor in Michigan, like UAW and other folks, ceded a lot of ground over these last 10 years and beyond. And for us, it means like we're trying to pick up a lot of those pieces and we're trying to imagine like where can we go together for for working folks. And so the work that I want to be able to do is, you know, having those conversations where electeds and all those people are responsive to our people and our base and our vision and our values. But then we're also throwing things at the wall and making it and seeing what sticks. So when y'all talk about worker centers, you know, that that excites me because, I, you know, again, we've been having our wheels turn and talking to funders and talking to friends about what does it look like to build a worker center in Detroit and what does it look like to like grow that sort of apparatus when it's, when it means like the political work, what does it mean? And so I think that's what I, uh, what I most am excited about and what I want to be able to say, if I, you know, took a time machine into three to five years and where I would look at the work is that like we were a laboratory for innovation here in, um, uh, in a city and in a Midwestern city with black and brown folks leading the way. That's cool, man. God, this is such a good conversation. Two last questions. What books y'all reading? I, uh, I've been sick recently, so I've been going back to like my comfort books. Uh, so I just finished reading the playbook for progressives again, like just thinking through organizing and the, and the components of it. And then this, I, wait, wait, this is your comfort book now. This comfort. This is like, what, <laughs> what, what feeds your soul? And, uh, and I read the 1619 project uh, to think about whether it's something I would recommend to other people and like how it helps us get to that analysis. So those are my two favorite things I'm talking to everybody about these days. How about you, Brian? What, what you reading, man? So Lauren prepped me for this, told me that you were going to ask me. And I was like, oh, man, what am I getting? But then luckily, I had a member at, at our uh, election watch party hand me uh, Shaka Senghor's Letter to the Sons of Society. Uh, he wanted to make sure I got this in my hands this week. And so during my downtime on Wednesday and, and this weekend, I've been trying to pour through that. So it's, you know, it's Shaka Senghor, uh, born and raised Detroiter who now lives in L.A., Formerly, you know, formerly incarcerated leader and activist, you know, writing letters to, uh, to to black men and to his sons about, you know, how we can be engaged in, in this in this fight for democracy and freedom. So 
it's been a it's been a good read for these last couple of days. That's good. That's good. Good. People, I mentioned I'm into the festival. I love music. What y'all listen to? What, what music got you going? You gotta get, get about the dumps. I am listening to Beyonce. I, I did that was that was not where I thought I would be uh, with this week, but it's it's a it's a really 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 great album. I have to say, in honor today, I was thinking about my playlist, and I think it's a it's a playlist that always reminds me of Lauren Jacobs, and I've been listening to a lot of Jill Scott these days. There's Jilly for Philly. We've got to come up with Lauren's version of that. <laughs> it sounds good, man. Um, this has been great. I, I appreciate y'all taking time to talk with us, and this has been really... I've enjoyed hanging and talking, obviously, but I think it's really super informative as well, and I look forward to seeing, checking back before three or five years, by the way, yeah, y'all did, and, and see how we go forward. So thanks a lot, okay? Thank you. Thank you. This has Thank been great. I loved Brandon Frey's Union for the Hood. It captures so much of the realities and challenges facing Black communities, where the legacy of strong unions have eroded over the past 40 to 50 years. For some older Black members of those communities, the value of unions is clear. For some younger members of those communities, talk of strong unions might as well be some historical lecture of an era long, long past. Regardless, the collective power that unions at their best represent is essential to transforming conditions in the workplace and in the communities. Thanks for joining me this week on Black Work Talk. Please check out our co-sponsor, Convergence's website at convergencemag.com or his Facebook page. And please pick up the new Convergence book, Power Can Seize Nothing, How Grassroots Organizing Wins Elections, a collection of essays and interviews about the on-the-ground efforts that mobilized voters in 2020 across the United States. I hope this podcast can grow to become part of the network of our movement for change. We need your help to build the Black Work Talk community. Please subscribe to the podcast, wherever you find your podcast, and go to Patreon to become a sustainer. And beyond the financial support, I would love to hear from you. What do you think about the show? Any suggestions for future guests or future topics to explore? Please let me know. Reach out to me at steven at blackworktalk.com and I promise to get back to you. Till next time, stay safe and be well. <laughs>